Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right, this one's a whopper I could not resist. From The Guardian, the following headline. Butterflies released in Finland contained parasitic wasps with more wasps inside. Oh. It's like a Russian doll of like butterfly wasp wasp? Is that what I'm understanding? Okay. Yeah, or maybe a turducken. (laughs) So when caterpillars of a beautiful butterfly were introduced onto a tiny island of Satunga in the Åland Archipelago, which I guess is kind of in the Scandi part of the world, Mm -hmm. scientists were trying to study how the emerging butterflies would disperse across the landscape. So it was, you know, we're introducing, we're looking at migration patterns, but some of the caterpillars pillars had a parasitic wasp known as Hypossoder horticola, which bursts from the caterpillar before it can pupate and become a butterfly. Like aliens, chest bursters. Yes. (laughs) But then, oh wait, we're only one level down. Living inside some of these small wasps was another, even tinier, rarer parasite. It's a hyperparasitoid wasp known as Mesochorus scf stigmaticus. Essentially, it kills the parasitic wasp around the same time that the wasp kills the caterpillar and then emerges 10 days later from the (laughs) caterpillar's carcass. So everyone's hitching a ride here. And not only that, by some unknown mechanism that we still don't understand, Wolbachia pipientis increases the susceptibility of the parasitic wasp to being taken over by the tiny parasitic wasp kind huh. of like a toxoplasmosis situation right where it kind right. of like lays the groundwork for the parasite to have easy groove whatever you want to call it but <laughs> perhaps most surprisingly because the small island populations are notoriously vulnerable to extinction all four species are doing well 30 <laughs> years after they originally introduced the species wow so, They've done a study of the genetics of the parasitic wasp and its bacterium, and it's shown that this survival is really remarkable because the Glanville fritillary, the original butterfly we're talking about, has already experienced several population crashes on Satunga. But the butterfly did seem to recover from isolated population crashes, and the genetic diversity in this island is still really high. The parasites may have survived on the island because of their super flying skills. Butterflies like the Glanville fritillary, it's a poor disperser, so it doesn't really move a lot. (laughs) But the tiny parasitic wasp has been able to fly or at least be lifted by strong winds to move between islands. So this guy is on the move. Wow. (laughs) They've also found that this wasp is now on other islands to the north where it was never recorded. Mm. I'm sure the uh, people of Scandinavia are thrilled with this ecological development. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense because the wasps are smaller and lighter, so they can ride the air currents, whereas the butterflies don't. It's just weird that the wasps can spread, but the butterflies can't. 
Yeah, or the way that the butterflies spread is not as evolutionarily advantageous mm. as crawling into a tauntaun and coming out when the timing's right. You know That's what I right. mean? Just hunker down for a while. That's right. If I needed a place to sleep and there was a giant <laughs> butterfly bigger than me, a caterpillar, I guess they go into the caterpillar, a giant yeah. caterpillar outside my house, I'd crawl in. You know, yeah. you got to do what you got to do to survive. And you know what? While I'm there, maybe I'll murder it. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, if you've already crawled inside it, it's pretty much a done deal. Might as well yeah, like, like put it out of its misery. Like, resource yeah, management is something that all species struggle with. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from theconversation.com, and it's titled, Facebook has known for a year and a half that Instagram is bad for teens despite claiming otherwise. Here are the harms researchers have been documenting for years. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, on the one mm -hmm. hand, it doesn't surprise me. Facebook is evil. On the other mm -hmm. hand, like, didn't we all know that? I mean, <laughs> like, yeah. but it's the data. Right. They had the data and we didn't. That's true. Right. For a company that claims to be data first and did make their decisions with data. I'm interested to hear what the data points are. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty rough. So Facebook officials had internal research in March 2020 showing that Instagram, the social media platform most used by adolescents, is harmful to teen girls' body image and well-being, but swept those findings under the rug to continue conducting business as usual, according to a report that came out last week in the Wall Street Journal. Facebook's policy of pursuing profits regardless of documented harm has sparked comparisons to Big Tobacco, which knew in the mm. 1950s that its products were carcinogenic, but publicly denied it into the 21st century. A Pew Research Center poll shows that 89% of teens report that they're online almost constantly or several times a day. Mm. And teens are more likely to log on to Instagram than any other social media site. Yet, studies consistently show that the more often teens use Instagram, the worse their overall well-being, self-esteem, life satisfaction, mood, and body image. Oof. One study found that the more college students used Instagram on any given day, the worse their mood and life satisfaction was that day. Mm. Also, like every other sentence in this article has a link to a study, so if you're interested, right. go look it up. But Instagram isn't problematic simply because it's popular. There are two key features of it that seem to make it particularly risky. First, it allows users to follow both celebrities and peers, both of whom can present a manipulated, filtered picture of an unrealistic body, along with a highly curated impression of a perfect life. While all social media allows users to be selective, Instagram is notorious for its photo editing and filtering capabilities. Plus, that is the popular platform among celebrities, models, and influencers. Facebook mm -hmm. has been relegated to the uncool soccer moms mm -hmm. and grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> so for teens, this seamless integration of celebrities and retouched versions of real-life peers presents a ripe environment for upward social comparison mm -hmm. or comparing yourself to someone who is, in scare quotes, better in some respects. Mm -hmm. Recently, researchers even tried to combat this effect by reminding Instagram users that the posts were unrealistic. And that did not work. No. <laughs> negative, <laughs> negative comparisons, which were nearly impossible to stop, still led to envy and lowered self-esteem. Even in studies in which participants knew the photos were shown on Instagram were retouched and reshaped, adolescent girls still felt worse about their bodies after viewing them. 
Instagram is also risky for teens because its emphasis on pictures of the body leads users to focus on how their bodies look to others. Mm -hmm. Research shows that for teen girls and increasingly teen boys, thinking about their own bodies as the object of a photo increases worrying thoughts about how they look to others, and that leads to feeling shame about their bodies. Just taking a selfie to be posted later makes them feel worse about how they look to others. Mm. These are not insignificant health concerns because body dissatisfaction during the teen years is a powerful and consistent predictor of late eating disorder symptoms. (sighs) The big question will be how Facebook handles these damaging Mm -hmm. results. History and the courts have been less forgiving of the the head-in-the-sand approach of big tobacco. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, but it was a long time before that shifted. It was shifted. a real long time. And yeah. if you have a lot of money with lawyers, you can just keep this tied up indefinitely in the courts while you continue to rake in that sweet, sweet app revenue. Well, mm-hmm. and not only that, but tobacco really only turned around after people had stopped smoking anyway. So, yeah, I, I mean, that. people will eventually stop using social media if only to move on to the next new thing. Yeah. At which point we can all go back in retrospect and be like, oh, Facebook was evil. But they're going to collect every dollar they can yeah. up until the moment that they're not getting money anymore anyway. So what do they care? Yeah. Listen, this is yeah. not just a lesson for teenage girls. But if you have to chant this to yourself like I do, comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. yeah. And also, like, so much of the time, these people aren't your peers, you know? Right. Like, yeah. This is not your tribe. Nothing about the way their life will ever matter to your life. And if you're a 13-year-old listening <laughs> to this podcast, very smart of you. Yeah, good but for also, you. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> but also, none of your classmates that you are envious of will ever matter. No. Trust me. You will not even <laughs> remember their names. Yeah. Like, it's absolutely Yeah. One, one day you'll find out that one of them died and you'll be like, huh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Up to if you want to include wow. that. No, because I, I was just, my gut reaction was like, oh, that's dark. And then I was like, no, that's happened to me. So, yep. all right, yep. you know. <laughs> yep. 2021, brutal, no prisoners. Oh. Yeah, I'm done pulling punches. <laughs> next link. Next link. All right. Well, this next one from the conversation is going to start off a little weird, but stick with me. We're going to pretend we're in Sunday school for a minute and remind everyone of the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So these were two small neighboring cities in the Middle East that we've never officially located, but we know they were somewhere along the coast of the Dead Sea. And as the story goes, the cities were full of bad people doing naughty things. And this guy named Lot talks to God and God says, I'm going to wipe these cities off the map. You should probably leave. But since I'm doing you a solid here, you'd better not show any regret as you're walking away. Whatever you do, don't look back. Mm -hmm. So Lot and his wife are walking. They're pretty far out of the city. And as promised, fire and brimstone rains down from the sky, completely wiping out every person, building, and living thing in both Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot keeps going, but his wife, who was apparently some distance behind him, turns back to look. And as punishment, she's turned into a pillar of salt. Mm -hmm. So that's the story. Why have we gone into it? Because a large team of archaeologists and other researchers now believe that this may be the first eyewitness account of a meteor strike. (gasps) What? So here is what they know for sure. There is an ancient city site on the coast of the Dead Sea that we have now been excavating for about 15 years, which we now call Tal el-Hammam. So there's no surviving records of what this city may or may not have been called at the time by the people who lived there. Tal el-Hammam is just what we call the dig site. Okay. 
And one of the things that they figured out pretty early on at this dig site was that it was actually a couple of cities stacked on top of each other. There was an upper layer that had the remains of building foundations, broken pottery, things like that. And then quite a few meters down, they suddenly encountered a five-foot thick layer of charcoal, ash, and melted mud bricks and pottery that were about 600 years older than the layer directly above. So it was pretty clear to them that at some point there was a city that was destroyed by fire, and then at some point much later, people moved back onto the site and started to rebuild. But the most fascinating thing about this destruction layer, as they called it, was the fact that the mud bricks and pottery were melted. They took some samples to a furnace and confirmed that these substances don't melt until they reach 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit, which, for comparison, is hot enough to melt an entire car in a matter of minutes. Whoa. They also found microscopic spherules of vaporized iron and sand, which are formed at 2,900 degrees Fahrenheit, And they even discovered some specific melted metal particles on the surface of the pottery, including platinum, which melts around 3,200 degrees Fahrenheit, and iridium, which melts at over 4,400 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Wow. All of which ruled out the possibility of your average fire or even a volcanic eruption because lava just doesn't get that hot. Mm -hmm. The other important piece of evidence they found in the destruction layer was something called shocked quartz which is a type of sand that can only form under immense pressure, specifically 5 gigapascals of pressure, or 725,000 pounds per square inch. (laughs) Wow. Put the heat and the pressure evidence together, and the only possible conclusion was a meteor strike. Mm -hmm. So now is where it gets really interesting. The researchers used something called the online impact calculator to figure out how big the meteor would have been. And this is actually a tool that's linked in the article if you want to go there and experiment with your own meteor impacts. But the end result was that the meteor that hit Tal el-Hammam was smaller than the one that killed the dinosaurs, for sure, and was about the same size as the meteor that struck Tunguska, Russia, in 1908. It would have been traveling at around 38,000 miles per hour and would have actually exploded about two and a half miles above the ground as it hit the atmosphere. Anyone looking at it would have been blinded instantly, Uh then vaporized by a heat wave, followed a couple of seconds later by a massive shockwave of pressure moving at about 740 miles per hour, which was strong enough to rip off the top 40 feet of the city's four-story tall palace and drop it into the next valley over. Wow. Wow. Okay, super convincing premise here. I am a believer. (laughs) It it gets even better. The other thing the online impact calculator is able to tell you is how the blast would spread out and weaken over further and further distances, given the type of landscape that it hit and lots of other variables that the researchers were able to provide. And given how close Tal el-Hammam is to the Dead Sea, they say we can be certain that an impact of this size would have vaporized a big chunk of seawater and splashed this intensely concentrated salt all over the surrounding area. (laughs) Wow. No. And that, of course, brings us back to Lot's wife. (laughs) Depending on how many miles away Lot's wife was from the city, she very well could have been covered in this airborne wave of crystallized salt. The salt theory also might explain why no one migrated back onto the site for at least 600 years because it would have made it impossible for crops to grow until the rains, which are not prevalent in the Middle East, finally rinsed the topsoil enough to make agriculture possible again. That's incredible. The researchers also note, though this is a little bit less certain, 
we do know the site of the ancient city of Jericho, about 14 miles west of Tal el-Hammam, and that wind from the meteor blast would have hit Jericho about one minute after impact and would have still been strong enough at that distance to knock down the city's outer walls, which, if you know your Sunday school, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Like, <laughs> they don't, they're don't. they less certain about that one because they don't know that those two events happened at the same time. But uh-huh. the fact is, this meteor struck and the walls of Jericho would have been damaged by it. So that's what they got. <laughs> I, I feel like I just sat through like a full episode of that PBS show where it's like ancient historical mysteries, but we solved it. And right, the right, science. right. <laughs> and aliens did it. No. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, sadly, after all this cool archaeology, the article does end on a super depressing note, pointing out that there are currently more than 26,000 known near-Earth asteroids. Millions more remain undetected, and it is absolutely inevitable that more of them will hit us in the future. So, mm-hmm. you know, sweet dreams. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think if I had to go out, I think being blinded, vaporized, and then crushed under 740 mile per hour pressure, that's not so bad. It's pretty instantaneous. Yeah. That sounds fast as heck. <laughs> <laughs> or a pillar of salt. That yeah. would be pretty, uh, pretty all right, too. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, let's keep with this theme a little bit. What if instead of a pillar of salt, you could convert your own human juice into ultra-hard concrete by mixing blood with Mars soil? Okay. Excuse me? Are they going to take us to Mars and sacrifice us to build stuff? I mean, I will read that science fiction novella whenever you finish it, Way, But the science behind it, according to Slash Gear, is that a study has found that if you mix blood with soil found on Mars, you can make concrete that is nearly twice as strong as what we're used to concrete being, which to my recollection is pretty dang strong. Yeah, concrete's not exactly weak. Part of the reason they were looking into this is because it is prohibitively expensive to send building materials from Earth to Mars, which is why any future habitats would need to be constructed primarily using materials already found on the red planet. So the University of Manchester did some research and found that compounds from urine and blood may play a key role in the construction process. Now, so I feel like they're burying the lead there because they're all like, oh, we could take your blood or your urine, but really we want the blood. <laughs> like I have much different feelings about donating those two different substances. You know what yes. I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, the way that this is all laid out, it sounds like a cult, right? Right. But this is just a, a chemical thing. So they've decided to call this material astrocrete, which I'm kind of surprised <laughs> they didn't go with astrocrete, but you know, you, you got to pick your battles and naming is one of them. But of the materials created, the best performing sample had a compressive strength of 40 megapascals, which is higher than ordinary concrete's 20 to 32 megapascals. So they did some quick math yeah. and a six person crew on Mars could contribute the biological materials needed to produce around 1,100 pounds of astrocrete in around two years. Ugh. They also note the amount of the Martian concrete produced would expand with each new crew member added to a long-term mission, producing what? greater amounts of concrete for building expansions. You getting some Hale-Bopp vibes yet on this one? <laughs> yeah. The more astronauts you put on the ship, the more urine you're going to get. That's not shocking. 
but it does it's sound not. a little bit like, you know, we've got our crew of people who are really only here for the blood and the urine. Like, we, they, yeah. they, we've told them they're really smart and they're good enough to be astronauts, but we all know what they're really for. Like, honestly, you know how yeah. we're always like, oh, Roman concrete was so much stronger than ours was and we think maybe they used ash. Maybe they just used blood. Maybe they well, were doing things. Well, I'm delighted you, you brought that up because oh, the concrete may prove more. <laughs> well, okay. They did say that the idea of mixing blood with soil to make concrete is not new. And they don't get into things like whether it's Maya or Roman. But yeah. Anyway, next time you're building your house, think about a little bit of blood magic. You don't know if it's going to make it stronger or not, but you can only find out. I mean, I'm not going to drain my blood for it, but I also am very clumsy and often injure myself. So, like, if the blood's there, I'm not opposed to using it necessarily. Yeah, you know, if you happen to be on a construction project and you're bleeding, why not? Yeah, I'll take my blood. I don't care anymore. (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Discover Magazine, and it's titled A Brief History of the Gombe Chimpanzee War. Hmm. <laughs> it's it's not that adorable, unfortunately. <laughs> Chimpanzees are brutal. That I know for sure. Yeah. So for centuries, it was long accepted that humans were the only creatures complex enough to wage war. You know, sure, some other animals might occasionally scuffle over food, territory, and other resources, but true war in the anthropomorphic sense, intact with all its violence, brutality, and tribalism, was thought to be a unique component of human nature. Perhaps then, it shouldn't be surprising that this notion was challenged by our closest living relatives. Gombe National Park lives on the western edge of Tanzania, bordered by the vast blue expanse of Lake Tanganyika. Famed primatologist Jane Goodall won renown here for her groundbreaking studies of the native chimpanzee population. The park is also home to a tribe of chimpanzees that Goodall named the Kasakela, and for a bloody time in the 1970s, this tribe turned the woodlands, valleys, and rainforests of the park into a battlefield during the first ever documented chimpanzee war. Yeesh. In 1971, the Kasakela tribe began to splinter after the death of its former leader. Over a span of eight months, the separatists, which included nine adults and their young, claimed the southern part of Kasakela territory as their own and formed their own clan, dubbed the Kahama, which I assume is on the part of the researchers and not the chimpanzees. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) when you first started that sentence, I was like, oh, we're talking about people for a second. No, we're not. We're talking about a quote-unquote tribe (laughs) that we've gone and named for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A brother duo named Charlie and Hugh would occasionally lead a war party. (laughs) I'm sorry. Your war general is named Hugh. That's awesome. (laughs) It's a stately name with a lot of history. Come on. Uh Yeah, Hugh the 23rd, you know. (laughs) So they would occasionally lead a war party of six males north into enemy territory, an unambiguous display of strength to the Kasakela. Around the same time, the northerners kept out of the area used by the breakaway group and a borderline was formed. Two years after the split, Tensions escalated further. Males from the two groups would screech at each other and display their strength before retreating back to their home territory. Another year passed until first blood was drawn on January 7th, 1974, by a war party of six Kasakela males who ambushed Godi, a southern male, as he was eating fruit from a tree. It, it really is bizarre how this, like, totally sounds like human war. And then Absolutely. you're like, oh, but he was just chilling, like, hanging from a tree. So. <laughs> so the northerners approached silently. Godi was not aware of their presence until it was too late. 
He jumped down and ran with the Kasakela males on his heels. A chimp grabbed Godi's legs and threw him to the ground. Aww. The other five caught up, then bit, pounded, and stamped on Godi while he was pinned to the ground. Aww. After ten minutes of the whirling tornado of screeching chimps, the northerners left, leaving Godi on the forest floor to die from his injuries. Over the next four years, more of the Kahama males were picked off in a similar manner. The second victim was beaten to death for 20 minutes by three <gasps> males. Next was Old Goliath, a high-ranking male back when the two chimp groups were united. Five Kasakela males, his former friends, turned on him. After the attack, his murderers repeatedly drummed on tree trunks, hurled rocks, and threw branches while calling out as if in triumph. Goliath died from his wounds the next day. Eventually, Hugh, a chimp who founded the separatist Kahama tribe, <laughs> went missing. I'm sorry. I'm having so many conflicting feelings hearing this because I know. this is like breaking. This is real violence. And yeah. now separatist. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, separatist tribe, chimpanzees, extremists, you know. I'm getting caught betrayals. up in the drama here, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. And so when Hugh went missing, he was likely killed by the Kasakela. And two more Kahama were killed and one vanished, either killed by the Kasakela or having left the region altogether. <laughs> Only Sniff, the sole survivor out of the six original males, now remained. For a while, it seemed as if he might manage to survive in spite of all odds, but his good fortune would not hold out. He was murdered like the others, and after four years and plenty of bloodshed, the war ended in 1978. Goodall explained, For so many years, I believed that chimpanzees, while showing uncanny similarity to humans in many ways, were by and large rather nicer than us. <laughs> Suddenly, I found that under certain circumstances, they could be just as brutal. They also had a dark side to their nature. Yep. All right. Hear yeah. me out. What if <laughs> I'm going to put an idea out there and I don't want anybody to steal it because I've just gone and publicly declared it. So it's mine. I want to make <laughs> a film adaptation of the Gombe chimpanzee war, but with human beings. Like, do the entire storyline with Hugh and Charlie and Sniff, but, like, like with people. Like, Tom Hanks can start it. It'll be fine. And then everyone can have their minds blown at the end when it turns out, like, oh, this was actually based on the chimpanzee war. <laughs> right. Like, it says, inspired by a true story. Yeah, just exactly. Like at the end of, you know, movies where it has, like, a picture of them in good times and, like, they went on to live their best life. Yes, it's all exactly. Except <laughs> it's all pictures of chimpanzee. <laughs> he went on to open a repair shop that uh, became the mayor of the town. <laughs> he became a banana salesman and was very productive. <laughs> I'd, I'd watch that. Yeah. Hell yeah. I'm, I'm going to write it as soon as we get off here. It sounds way better than the other things I have to do today. <laughs> Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, get ready for a nice hit of nostalgia because this next article from The Guardian is called The People Making New Games for Old Consoles. Ooh. Wow. And it's exactly what it sounds like. There are apparently a whole bunch of indie game developers who are making new games for consoles like the Atari 2600 and the NES. And these, again, are not just digital programs that run on emulators. They are actually making physical cartridges that you plug into these old machines. How? I don't know, the same way they made them before? Factories? I mean, you can. It's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not new technology. It's old technology. They I know how. that's true. But I mean, I guess 
it's artisanal video game creation then? Because yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're small runs. They're not, you know, blowing up the market entirely. It's more about, okay. you know, tapping into those collectors and being able to sell them for a pretty high price, which we'll get into in a minute. But yeah, the demand is simply there. In the collectible market, old games have been going for unbelievable prices, including the recent huh. sale of a mint copy of Super Mario 64 for $1.5 million. What? Yeah. And according to Josh Fairhurst from Console Indie Developer Limited Run, the market isn't even just old people like us trying to relive their youth. He says a significant number of their sales go to young people who weren't even alive when these consoles were popular. He says it's basically wow. like the same retro cool factor that makes hipsters want to own albums on vinyl instead of MP3s, mm. right? And Dennis Mendel, head of Strictly Limited Games in Germany, also points out that young people especially are keenly aware that when they buy digital games, they aren't actually buying the game. They're buying a license to play the game. And at any point, these modern developers can go in and update their code or in some cases delete your ownership of the game entirely without warning. So that also explains some of the desire to own a physical cartridge that nobody can mess with, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, on the developer side of things, they're also very excited to be making games in these very low-res, low-memory settings. Because one reason, of course, is game developers are also gamers themselves, so they're getting that same nostalgia hit. But Fairhurst says retro hardware also appeals to developers because games can be created with just two or three people. And they know that their audience will appreciate the fun factor for what it is instead of bashing them for not having beautifully rendered cinematics or good enough voice actors or all the other trappings that are expected of a AAA title, mm -hmm. you, you have that permanent out where you can say, oh, well, we only had 8K of memory, so that this is yeah, all we like could do. It's like the stakes are permanently lowered yeah, in this category. Exactly. And in some cases, these developers actually are industry veterans who started their careers making these exact type of games. Audacity Games, for example, was founded by Gary Kitchen and David Crane, who both worked at Activision in the early 80s. They just released a new game called Circus Convoy, and they've gone all out on the retro feel. When you order it, it comes in a little cardboard box, and the box <laughs> art is god-awful, just like it used to be. <laughs> like, it's one of those, like, a pencil drawing that you got your friend's friend to do. Like, it looks terrible, nice. which is absolutely on purpose. They 100% did that on purpose. And some of these companies are also re-releasing old games that are popular but rare. For example, Limited Run recently secured the rights to make new copies of a game called Shantae for the Game Boy Color, which goes for about $600 on the used market. Meanwhile, Strictly Limited released a game called UltraCore for the Mega Drive, which was originally designed by a company called DICE, who is now famous for the Battlefield series, but back when they made UltraCore, they were nobody, and their game actually got canceled by the publisher just <gasps> before it was supposed to be released. Oh! So, to some people, this is like finding a previously unpublished work by J.D. Salinger, right? It's a yeah. classic, even before anybody's seen it. Huh. And Strictly Limited did an initial run of just 2,000 cartridges for UltraCore, thinking, you know, well, let's see what happens, and they sold out almost immediately. Like, this market has gone from nothing to massive very, very quickly. Wow. Unfortunately, as you pointed out, Angie, none of this comes cheap. Fairhurst says <laughs> that between the custom PCB boards and the injection molding for the cartridges, the base cost for them to make these new old games comes out to about $30 to $40 each. He says they can't get away with selling the new cartridges for more than about $50 each, so the margins are very thin, and they often mm -hmm. have to split that with the owner of the original license as well. But yeah. all of the companies quoted here agree that that's a big part of their philosophy that they don't resent, because as Mendel says... Financially supporting game creators is essential for building a sustainable market. 
So it sounds like they got a good thing going. I think, you know, I don't own an Atari, but I do own some somewhat older consoles. And I feel like I would definitely buy a new game for the PlayStation 1 or the GameCube or something. (laughs) I see it as a very niche thing, but is it niche or cult? How would you describe the the market? Like, because it's kind of both of those, but it's really robust at the same time. I I had no idea. And, you know, with any luck, they've got at least 10 good years before they start abusing their developers like the rest of the industry. (laughs) (laughs) Then it's that old retro game workshop, you know, those sweatshop game devs where they're just pushing out indie games left and right. Yep. 80 hours a week with no overtime. Sounds good. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Good news from newatlas.com. Michelin's airless passenger car tires are getting their first public outing. So you may or may not have been aware, but Michelin has had airless tire technology for over 16 years now. They call it the Twiel. (laughs) (laughs) And New Atlas covered the Twiel back in 2005. It became the most popular story ever for what was then called gizmag.com and Mm. now is New Atlas. But regardless, the advantages of an airless tire are pretty obvious, right? You can never be brought to stop by a puncture or a blowout. According to Michelin, about 200 million tires every year hit scrapyards because of this. Secondly, you don't have to look after your tire pressure. It's obviously a time saver, but it also eliminates all early wear caused by underinflation. It has internal spokes that are hugely tunable to meet desired performance characteristics. Mm. You can poke holes right through the tread if you want to let water escape, which can potentially create a lot better resistance to aquaplaning. Are, are you sold yet? You ready to buy some? It, it depends. <laughs> do they look cool or do they look really <laughs> awful? Because that's a factor. People aren't going to buy things if it makes their little sob look like a tank. I mean, it's weird looking. <laughs> it's true. To be honest, they just look like regular tires. Huh. I mean, there's nothing really special looking about them. But the issue with Michelin is that the twill replaces the entire wheel assembly. Mm. So we still haven't seen it on the road yet. But Michelin has teamed up with GM to design and start selling an airless tire for street use. And Michelin says it will withstand much greater impacts than a regular tire and wheel and will have a dramatically longer lifespan. And the best part is that it doesn't really feel any different to the driver. It Mm. only adds around 7% to the weight of the wheel, which is less than existing run-flat tires do. So the Uptis Airless Tire got its first public outing recently in Munich, in which, quote, certain lucky members of the public (laughs) had a chance to ride in a mini electric kitted out with a set. They felt no different. That's kind of the point. Yeah. So if you would like to see an awkward interview with, quote, automotive lifestyle (laughs) YouTuber, Mr. JWW, he has his experience with the Uptis. But boy, I am looking forward to something that is going to last longer, be a bit more durable. Yeah, you have reminded me, and this is absolutely true, my tire pressure light just came on a couple days ago, and I've been ignoring it, (laughs) (laughs) and I really shouldn't. Someday, you may never have to do this ever again. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I do it now. I just pay somebody to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Super fair. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from universetoday.com. It's titled, Researchers Generate an Entire Virtual Universe and Make It Available for Download. 
if Ooh. you have a hundred terabytes of free hard drive space. Uh, wait, a <laughs> hundred terabytes? A hundred terabytes, yeah. Is that like close to the capacity of the human brain? Like, could I just go straight to the meat computer here? <laughs> uh, I forget. <laughs> I don't know how, how much, much capacity data... the human brain has, but. <laughs> how much data can the human. Okay, so it can store about 2.5 million gigabytes. That's the human brain. Okay. Just for context. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Anyhow, so astronomy is a bit different from many sciences because you can only have a sample size of one. The cosmos contains everything we can observe, so astronomers can't study multiple universes to see how our universe ticks. But they can create computer simulations of our universe. By tweaking different aspects of their simulation, astronomers can see how things such as dark matter and dark energy play a role in our universe. The Yuchu simulation, U-C-H-U-U, <laughs> is the largest and most detailed simulation of the universe ever made. It contains 2.1 trillion particles in a space 9.6 billion light years across. It doesn't focus on the formation of stars and planets, but instead looks at the behavior of dark matter within an expanding universe. The detail of Yuchu is high enough that the team can identify everything from galaxy clusters to the dark matter halos of individual galaxies. Hmm. It takes a tremendous amount of computational power and storage to create such a detailed model. Sure. The team used over 40,000 computer cores and 20 million computer hours to generate their simulation, and it produced more than 3,000 terabytes or 3 million gigabytes for us mortals. So just a little bit over what you could fit in your right, brain in terms of raw data. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just, just chop off a little bit of the universe and then just throw it in <laughs> right. there, and then you are one with most of the universe. <laughs> um, using high-density compression, however, the team was able to compress their results into a mere 100 terabytes of storage, so much more mm. reasonable. That is still a tremendous amount of data, but it can be stored on a single drive. For example, the Exa drive from Nimbus is a 100 terabyte solid state drive in a standard 3.5 inch form factor. Granted, it will set you back $40,000, but if you have that kind of change hiding between your couch cushions, why not use it to keep a universe in your pocket? You know, all things considered, 40000 is not that much. I was thinking it yeah. would be a lot more than that. Yeah, yeah but considering terabytes? how it's going to probably be outdated or obsolete whenever we have the next technology platform leap, isn't that a concern? Yeah, probably. but you know, if you like tech, you pay extra money yeah. for the cool things now. Mm. So Yeah, I guarantee you, Bill Gates has got one of these. No question. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I mean, for him, 40K is like getting a soda at a vending machine. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't care. Yeah. So if you're Bill Gates, you could do that. So fortunately, <laughs> if you don't have that much spare change, you can access the data online. The YouTube team has their raw data on skiesanduniverses.org, so you can explore their virtual universe all you want. Mm. In addition to being a detailed cosmic simulation, the YouTube simulation can be used by researchers working on scientific data mining. As large sky surveys and more simulations are created, the data will become so large, data mining will play a crucial role in astronomical research. Until that data becomes available, data miners can hone their skills on a pocket universe. Well, it's cool that it's available online, so you can just go play on someone else's 100 terabyte drive. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder, like, what's their bandwidth? I wonder, can, I don't know, how, how fast can you get results? Can I be like, I want to see what this black hole looks like and just get the data? Like, I, I don't know. I need to go play with this thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at their site right now. It looks like there's a number of different types of things, including a public data access site and a GitHub. But yeah, I think you'd have to mess around with it to really know what exactly is happening. Yeah. We've got quite a few simulations here, it seems. It's for nerds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles that we did not have time to get to today include strong butt muscles are the key to sprinting at an elite level. Dinosaur cowboys are hunting for the next $32 million T-Rex. And fire rips through mysterious Google Mansion. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you notice the lack of ads, that's not an accident. It's a choice. We hope it's a choice you agree with. If you'd like to support our podcast in this endeavor, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 